for that wonderful reading. Dear friends, shall we bow our heads as we come to the Lord in prayer? We ask the Lord to inspire and illumine our hearts. Let us pray. O oh Lord, we pray that these words of Scripture would come alive in us, and that He would search every part of our hearts and bring it forth to light. And as you shine your light on it, Lord, dispel the darkness within it, that we may be sons of light, sons and daughters of light, Lord, who go forth to do your will and who are people of joy. May the words of my mouth and meditations of all our hearts, O Lord, be acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Today's passage is taken from Luke uh, chapter 6. And Luke chapter 6 is quite often seen as the equivalent of Matthew chapter 5 to 7, uh, the Sermon on the Mount or the Beatitudes, uh, the way in which we ought to live life. Um, it's too long to try and cover it in one service. Uh, so I'm actually just going to focus on the issues that affect uh, small groups and in particular relationships uh, with each other. And at the back of this theme is this uh, title, Love Chose You, uh, and this uh, personification of love being Jesus Christ. One of the verses that we often use uh, in this uh, metaphors for small groups is this statement, and this is the uh, New Living Translation, a dynamic translation of Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 to 25. It says, Let's see how inventive we can be in motivating one another to acts of love and good works, uh, not avoiding meeting together as is the manner of some, but encouraging one another. You might say that small groups is in the DNA or within the core center of uh, Christianity. Jesus effectively modeled it. He had an inner circle of four, but he also had a wider circle of 12, and then there were a very large group of disciples that followed him. And all the apostles and disciples effectively had this particular exercise where they would meet together in smaller groups, light a flame, and then go forth to set others on fire for Christ. And so for those of you who are not yet in a small group, my urgent plea for you is do consider the testimony of Scripture that calls us to be in community, in particular smaller communities, particularly communities of strangers. Uh, and, and I'm going to highlight this as even as we go through the text uh, in a short while. Now, to set the frame of where Paul, uh, sorry, where, where um, Luke is giving this story, he begins first with the statement. If you have your Bibles open, uh, you, you turn to chapter 6 at the beginning. Uh, to set the background, uh, Jesus is observing what's happening on Sabbath, and he begins with these particular questions. Uh, he was going through the grain fields and he was feeding and he was doing some things which the Pharisees and the Sadducees particularly did not like. But when he comes to uh, verse 8, Jesus knew what was going on in their mind, how upset they were that they were, that Jesus and his disciples were not actually following the rituals and the traditions about Sabbath. Uh, Jesus asked them this question. Uh, he asked a man with a shriveled hand, get up, 
and stand in front of everyone. So this man has a shriveled hand. Uh, here's a picture of a hand, but it's a shriveled hand. And uh, he says, I ask you, Jesus is posing this question, and this is a question in a way which is a diagnostic question. It will split them as to how they will make this decision. And his question to them is, which is lawful on Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or to destroy it? Now, in other passages of this uh, gospel that talks about the same thing, they refuse to answer him. They don't say anything at all. Partly because, you see, to follow the tradition would be to not do anything. Okay? Uh, but to not do anything is also unkind and unloving to this particular person. So they're caught in a catch-22. They don't want to answer this without incriminating themselves. And in another passage of that same scripture, uh, Jesus is really angry with them and he says this thing, stretch out your hand. He doesn't touch him, he doesn't do anything to him other than to ask that he stretch out his hand. Now the mere fact that he's able to do this means that by the power of God, a miracle has occurred. And this is why Jesus' teaching is so powerful. He doesn't just say it, he demonstrates it with power and that power affirms what God himself agrees. Which therefore is, it is more important to do good and to save a life rather than to observe the rituals. And so at the start of this particular chapter, Jesus is being confronted by Pharisees and Sadducees who set the rituals, the boundaries, the observations, the markers that say, if you do this, you are Christian, or if you do this, you are a Jew, a good Jew. If you don't do this, then you are outside that boundary, bad. But instead of focusing on the ritual observations, he instead goes into the right attitudes particularly what is the right attitude about the Sabbath. And in another part of the scripture, he says, you know, uh, the Sabbath was made for man, not man, for Sabbath. But what the Jews had done, the Pharisees and Sadducees in particular had done, had been to saddle people with uh, the observation of these rituals, so much so that the rituals uh, seem to have a life of their own. Now, we need to keep this in mind because when we answer the next questions about uh, what Jesus says about enemies, what Jesus says about how we gather together, he's no longer talking about rituals of affiliation or rituals of behavior towards each other, but he's talking about our attitudes towards one another. He's not giving you boundary markers. He's giving you uh, examples of this is what happens when the kingdom of God has come into a person. Many people have read the Beatitudes, uh, uh, whether, in Mark, uh, whether in Matthew or Luke, and they said, blessed are the poor in spirit. And therefore they say, let's make that the rule that I should be poor in spirit, uh, which totally defeats the purpose because if Jesus is saying to them, don't, don't be just observers of the ritual, understand the character and the attitude that comes from it, which reveals itself in this form of behavior, it then becomes not so much behave this way, but have this kind of attitude. Uh, let me dive into this. 
in Luke uh, chapter 6, uh, at this point in verse 12 to 16, he begins to select these apostles. He calls them out of a larger group of people. And he has amongst them uh, this, this statement. When morning came, he called his disciples, chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. Now, what's the difference between a disciple and an apostle? An apostle is a messenger, a sent one. One who is sent in order to fulfill a, a, a command or instruction uh, that is given with the authority of the person sending it. A disciple is one who follows. Yesterday, uh, we were at uh, Tabang Lama and some of our guys were asking because they have to speak in Bahasa Malaysia. They say, what do you call a disciple in Bahasa Malaysia? Anybody know? Uh, it's called murid. <laughs> yeah, student. A disciple is a student under a teacher. Right? And so another person said, he's not pengikut. <laughs> I say, no, pengikut is follower. But yeah, disciples are also followers. So this understanding of what it means to be an apostle and a disciple. A disciple is one who sits and follows uh, follows the teacher, Jesus in this case. But they are also sent ones now. These 12 are apostles who are going out. So they gathered together to be with each other, very much like small groups. We gather together to be with each other in order to receive instruction and discern what we need to do, but we're then sent out in order to do God's will. Then, uh, verse 14, Simon, whom he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Now, all the Gospels generally have that particular title for Judas. Uh, Judas Iscariot, traitor, the one who betrayed Jesus. But if you do a character study of all the 12 of them, most of the 12 would actually hate each other. Uh, of the 12 people, they were not the cream de la cream of the people. They were not very intelligent. The first four of them were actually uh, fishermen. Okay. Not, to, not to say that they're not intelligent, but they were not sitting in the higher echelons of the leadership in the Sanhedrin arguing theology. They were fishermen. Uh, let me just uh, put that list out. Uh, by the way, there are notes in your bulletin. Uh, so if you want to fill in the blanks uh, and stay awake, uh, that's a good way to do that. So they're disciples and apostles. Apostles are messengers, people who are sent. Uh, the first one, Peter, Andrew, James and John. Peter and Andrew are brothers. James and John are also brothers. But all four of them are friends of each other and they are shepherd. James and John have uh, fiery tempers or they are known as sons of Zebedee or sons of lightning, if you want to call it that. And Peter, we know, is quite uh, impulsive. Uh, Philip, Bartholomew, who is also known as Nathaniel. Matthew, who is a tax collector, sinner, outcast, way out in the society of uh, the Jewish people. And Thomas, who is a perpetual doubter. He has this characteristic, I won't believe unless I put my hand in there. Uh, I won't believe these miracles unless I'm actually following Jesus. So you have in this group of people, very diverse, different people who don't know each other. And then the last group, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, 
and Judas, uh, son of James, who's also known as Thaddeus, and Judas Iscariot, who became traitor. Now, why do I group them this way? Because quite commonly, we understand that of the 12, they are divided into three groups of four. And each of the group have one leader, uh, Peter, Philip, James, are the three commonly seen as leader of a group. And in our Methodist circle, when we have small groups, we also have what we call a, a, uh, an accountability group, a group of people who are particularly closer to each other. It's normally three or four people who they journey together a bit more closely than they do with everyone else. So this is a model which we have uh, given to us by Jesus and we, in a way, replicate it in our Methodist church uh, small group uh, environments. Now, I would like to highlight something. Matthew, as a tax collector, is a sworn enemy of uh, Simon the Zealot. The Zealots were a group of people who were very anti-Roman. And as far as they were concerned, anyone who had dealings with the Roman people or who were doing the work of the Roman people were enemies of the state, you know, uh, equivalent to sedition, treason. You, your job is to kill them if you can. So can you imagine the kind of stigma involved when you bring a group of totally disparate people who hate each other's guts? They would find, they would, you know, uh, the zealots were known as a form of assassins as well. They had that reputation later in time where people in the, uh, the, the monarchy who were in cahoots together with the Romans uh, would suddenly be assassinated in the middle of the night. So you can imagine Matthew traveling together with this group of 12, sleeping every night, wondering, is Simon going to appear one day and stick a knife into him? And they obviously had very different views about how the kingdom would be like. But Jesus brought them together. So what do we take out of this? Well, Jesus chose them out of love, not because they qualified, but because he saw in them something that indicated that they would be united through him. So here's the thing about the church family or the small group family. We are very diverse. We talk about different things. We come from different backgrounds. We have different likes and dislikes. We may even have personalities that conflict with each other. But our unity, the thing that binds us together and brings us together is Jesus and his command. And his commands were gather together, make disciples, go forth and teach the world, rescue, you know, what we sang in the hymn just now, rescue the perishing. And so we're chosen in our diversity. Unfortunately, in our human circumstances, we tend to like to gather together uh, in the same way that flocks uh, or birds do together. So the small group is one situation where we gather together as strangers who do not know each other but have this common bond of unity in the Spirit through Christ. And that is indeed a most marvelous bond. Uh, some of us in the leadership and in, the, uh, in our uh, prayer teams recently have been keeping track of uh, one of our young youths who's over in uh, 
uh, in Miri at this point in time. He encountered some difficulties, had to come out as a part of, uh, or, you know, he fell ill basically, and so we had to take him out, bring him to Miri, send him to GH. Now he's totally out there on his own in a place where no family and friends are there. But because of the connection of our churches, because we have fellow brothers and sisters over there, we reached out a hand. And step by step, day by day, they have just been caring for him, uh, providing hospitality, encouragement and support. That is what it means when we are brought together by our diversity, but united for Christ. Because every time you say, thank you so much, it says, you know, all for Christ. You know, glory to God. Praise the Lord. They do this out of love but we are united in this bond of Christ. They are expressing love to a perfect stranger. And the only thing that binds us together is because we both affirm Christ as Lord and we have this common bound. But the next question goes to ask, how do we choose our leaders or our small group members? To some extent, the whole criteria is, are you willing to follow Jesus? doesn't matter what station you come from, doesn't matter how important or mighty or what title that you have, uh, we note that these 12 people begin a movement and a transformation that has continued for the last 2,000 years and is now probably the biggest contributor to one of, if not the most largest Christian movement that there is. Fishermen, ordinary tradespeople, outcasts, murderers, and people who doubted themselves. God somehow brought them together and instilled in them this particular desire. Now, why did Jesus do this? Why did Jesus bring together this group of 12? I mean, he could have done this solo. He's God. And as God, he had all power to just do this himself. Yet, he gathered around him these 12 of whom one of them would be the one that would betray him and all of them generally would run away when he came to trial. I think he brought them into this picture because he wanted to give them this responsibility to say, look, what I have started, I'm going to leave and let you take over. So there is this challenge that are we in the way that we're meeting as a small group, creating environments where we are going to perpetuate what Christ has done and taught to us so that others will follow and do. I recall one of my uh, young adult's friends, um, she, she shared, uh, not here, but in Kiel, she shared one day that what really touched her about the small group, and she broke down when she shared this, she said, uh, for a period of time, I went through my family and my family was all that I had. But I had a, a, a parent who was really going through very severe mood swings. And I was very alone. And even though I came to church, I knew people and I was interacting with them. It was always very superficial. Hi, bye, smile. They knew nothing about me. And the thing that changed one day, she said, was when I came to the small group and they said, uh, what can I pray for for you? And she said, I've got a wisdom truth extraction to do. And she shared about how afraid she was. And what happened after that was every day from that day, people were calling up and asking, how are you? Uh, do you need porridge? 
uh, how you know it, it was the fact that someone knew something more than just the external knew what fear and pain that she was going through with her teeth and was actually communicating care and love that's when she said I now felt part of a community outside of just my normal circle of people it filled her with life another person shared a totally different thing that person shared and said you know through the small group I've done things which I would never have done on my own I said, what is that? He said, I went, followed this bunch of crazy people and we, we went to visit, visit an orphanage. Because he said, if you were on my own, I wouldn't know where to go, I wouldn't know what to do and I'd be all alone and I wouldn't do it. But because we went together as a group, we did this together. And it was fun, so much fun that they decided to go on an Orang Asli village mission work. And again, they only went, and many of the women there said, I, you know, it's like, wow, orang asli, toilet, don't know what toilet, do I have to bring a spade, <laughs> dig a hole, where do I go to the toilet, and all that stuff. And I said, don't worry, you need toilet, uh, you know, Alex will dig a hole for you, and put a tent around there for you, stand guard in front of it for you if you need to. If chicha comes in or cockroach comes in, they will come and rescue you. It was that encouragement that said, okay, since we're all in this together, I will step out of my comfort zone and go. So in this diversity, we are teaching each other how to step out of our comfort zone in order to follow what Christ calls us to do. That's what small groups uh, do for us. And comes this, uh, this thing in love in action, because Jesus doesn't say love one another. He doesn't just say that. He gives very graphic examples and, and, and literal actions of what it means to love. He gave this example. To you who are listening, I say, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. Three things. Eh? Actually, there are quite a number of things in here and it might blow your mind once you start unpacking it. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those uh, who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. You know, in the evidences of all the times when I'm asked to pray, I'm always asked to pray for people I like. But in most of the evidences in the Bible, it says pray for those who hate you, your enemy. It is totally counter-cultural. It is totally not ritual, but totally an attitude that we take that transforms how we deal with the community. Now, if someone slaps you on the one cheek, turn to them the other also. And if someone takes your coat, do not withhold from them your shirt. Uh, uh, sorry, do not, do not withhold your shirt from them as well. Um, I brought this coat in a way because it was a bit cold. But if you imagine a situation where you are asked to give your coat, the next thing that left is this shirt. And thereafter, I'm not going to take this off in front of you, if you're wondering that. Maybe uh, too traumatic for you. <laughs> but for many people who, who encounter this, the, the giving of the coat, the outer coat, is the one that protects the person from the elements in the Middle East. And to then also say, give me your outer shirt as well, is 
in a way to be totally exposed. I used to wonder, um, is this an expression of what we're supposed to do? I think, wow, die lah. Every, every guy who comes to me and says, hey, you Christian, right? Pow! Turn the other cheek, come on. <laughs> Let me see that. But again, Jesus is not giving us rules, more rules to live by. He is giving us examples of an attitude within us. So when I change the question to ask, what is the attitude that's being demonstrated here? That when you slap them, they turn the other cheek. When you uh, take something away from them, they don't even withhold the shirt. Uh, that when you ask of them, they give. And when you've taken something uh, from them, they don't demand it back. They don't ask for retribution or vengeance. So rather than looking at the actions as a, as a, here's another set of rules to live by, I had to ask myself, what is the attitude behind this? What is the character that's being demonstrated behind it? And I finally realized that if you look at 1 Corinthians 13 about love, love is patient, love is kind, long-suffering, uh, does not hold a record of wrong, that's what happens. When you use that love, you see these characteristics begin to appear. So love in action, therefore, uh, to do good to those who hate you, to bless those who curse you, to pray for those who mistreat you, uh, these are all characteristics, uh, expressions of the nature of a person who really values the person who is opposed to them. He really wants to love them, even though they are mistreating you. It is the nature of God to do good to those who hate you. For the centurions or the soldiers that were, uh, that were cursing Jesus and uh, killing him, he said, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. He blessed those who curse him by sharing his life and pouring out his blood. He prayed for Israel and for all the world, particularly since they were mistreating him. And so these actions, the turning of the other cheek, the ability to give all that you have, the, you know, the, the person who is always responding, you need, I give, you need, I give, uh, keeps no record of wrongs. These are all characteristics if you were to take that 1 Corinthians passage about love and you put it there, that's what's being expressed. So rather than the ritual, okay, if somebody slaps you, the ritual is turn the other cheek. It's not about that. So you mean if he slaps only, then only you do, is it? If he kicks you, you don't need, you can kick back as many times as you want. No, it's an expression, an example of an attitude behind it. Now, some of you might say, I'm going to be ending up like a rug. You know, I just, the people are just going to wipe their feet all over me and I'm just going to be trampled all over it. Yeah, they will. Particularly if you take it from a point of a rule book, that this is the rule, therefore, whether I think about it or not, I have to do it this way. No, you have to recognize that there are times when we have to stand firm and be opposed to evil. 
And so in order to reconcile these theological differences, we must look at what is the essence of what is being said. It is the attitude of love that expresses it in these particular ways. Being slow to anger, being patient, being kind, being generous, not keeping a record of wrongs. And we see that. We see that in different aspects of our community. I see people who go to the McCallum Street Ministry and although the McCallum people don't always necessarily express gratitude or thanks or even acknowledge you, sometimes they only come just because they want the freebie. And yet our people still go. They still continue to persevere. <laughs> because it is in these difficult characteristics that you see the identity of love being expressed by the actions. Jesus encaps this is his catch-all statement. Do to others what you would have them do to you. So you ask yourself, what would you want others to do to you? Primarily, forgive my mistakes, to be generous to me, and to love me, even when I am so unlovable. I think particularly for families, children, husbands, wives, single people, all that, we, we love the people who love us knowing that we are rather unlovable at times. We are grumpy, we have our mood swings, we go through our periods of difficulty and stress, but by covenant and by choice, not just by feeling, we continue to persevere and love each other. So my question for you to ponder on, how do you concretely display love? I know in small group, you are concretely displaying love because every time when difficulty comes, you continue to do this. I, I used to have a small group leader who says, you know, her house was a bit like a showcase model house. You know, people come and take photos, put it in magazines. To say it's that kind of house. But she would open it up for small groups and small groups with children. Do you know what that is like? <laughs> Those of you who have children, you know, like, wow. <laughs> it's like asking for a tornado or a comet to go through your house and then having to clean up after. Does she like it? No. But why should she, does she do it? She says, it's my act of uh, hospitality and it's costly but I do it. I also have people who say, you know, one of my church elderly members is unwell and so I will go uh, every day, make porridge until they do. One of my friends, uh, he was in his 50s and one of the activities he did was he would actually call all his small group members because he was the youngest. He was 55, I think, 55, 56 everyone else was 70 above and so he said what i decided to do is i will call every day make sure that they answer the call if they don't answer i will call again half an hour i will call again every half an hour until they answer the phone and if after two hours i don't get a call i will call the neighbor <laughs> and if i can't get the neighbor then i will go and i'll see whether they're there because they realize that these elderly folks are alone. They have no one. 
That's how they concretely displayed their love. You ask them, do you know these people? Well, I know them now. I didn't know them when I was a stranger in the church. I, said, I did ask him, how did you end up uh, being in this small group? They're all, you know, at least 15 years older than you. He said, because they fed me. <laughs> I, I just arrived in town and I, I came to the church and, they, and uh, he said, the old people all love to cook, but they got nobody to feed. I'm willing volunteer. <laughs> and out of that relationship uh, of strangers, <clears throat> They began to love and care for each other. I'm trying to get across to you, brothers and sisters, if you feel that you have enough relationships, then you've not really plumbed the depth of what God has in store for you. From all the different relationships that we have in our different communities, when we begin to care for each other. But it is also an exercise that when you're forced to display love, love grows when it is stretched. You know, when you have to deal with difficult people. Uh, one of my young adult small group friends, they grew in love because they had a family with a very difficult child. The child was uh, loud, uh, quite obnoxious at times, and generally was uh, forever angry. And the parents, of course, suffered in silence, ashamed. The rest of the family was like, why are you a kid like that? <laughs> but they bore with each other and they supported each other. So much so that one day, uh, two of the couples said, hey, uh, you guys are really tired. Do you want to leave this, your, your boy with us? And they cried because they said no one has ever offered to do that because the boy is hard to handle and because they did that they had finally after two years some marriage time because all this while they always had to wait for their parents who were not local they wait for the parents to come then we have time with each other but you know that that boy that little kid only allowed these other strangers to take care of him because they had been meeting each other in the small groups and they say I know you you're familiar and you can bear my nonsense. These are the times when love is concretely displayed. And small groups I have seen has been one avenue where this happens quite regularly. Jesus goes further and he makes this point about love in action. He said, If you do good to those who will do good in return to you, how are you any different from sinners? How are you any different? When you do good to those who do good to you, how are you any different? Even the sinners do that. And so Jesus is pointing to rituals and saying the failure of the rituals is because the attitudes are not right. And so he asks, what is the appropriate attitude and character that makes you different from others? And he goes by saying this, love your enemies, do good to them, lend to them without expecting to get anything back, then your reward will be great. Lend without expecting to get anything back. Now I caution this. I'm not asking you to lend just for the sake of lending in order to get somebody off your back. 
especially if that person you know is going to lend money in order to invest in some crazy harebrained in uh, you know scheme or to go and feed an addiction again the ethos in this is not do it the ethos is where are you showing love and so historically when people come up to me and say i need money i'm poor i'm hungry and all that stuff i say right sit down have a meal with me and it has been hard because some of these people who come they don't want to have a meal or if they want a meal they want a meal which they can resell on to somebody else so that they can get the cash and so I made it purposely difficult if you're hungry I will feed you you sit down if you need groceries I will go with you to the grocery buy it for you it is harder definitely easier to give money and say oh, off you go I hope you go and buy some groceries but the harder one is to do what is necessary but more so is this bit that if I give to you I'm not expecting you to return back if you lend expecting them to reward you back then how are you any different therefore in a lot of the giving that we do for mission for social concerns for other outside things we have to be accountable but yet at the same time release it because it's given to them and then God will respond but hear this in all of these things the response that Jesus says your reward will be great you'll be children of the most high because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked he's calling you to have the nature of God and the nature of God is to be kind to those who are ungrateful and wicked if your responses to others are on the basis of suka sama suka like and alike then God's caution to you is that's not me and you are called to take on the nature of God which means even when someone has done evil to you you respond to them by doing what is good for them not to utterly condemn them be merciful just as your father is merciful now many people have stopped at that point and not looked at verse 37 and 38 in fact quite often we we quote verse 38 about offerings uh, no that's not really where the context is from the context is in relation to your attitude towards others right will be respond uh, in response will be god's attitude towards you your generosity to others will be given to us now that last phrase there with the measure you use it will be measured to you uh, it's not an easy translation but uh, the bm actually amazingly does it quite well sukatan yang kamu beri kepada yang lain akan digunakan untuk kamu sendiri it actually says the same thing but you understand it as whatever you give to others that also will be given to you so if you are stingy to others people will be stingy to you but worse still god god is the one who rewards you in situations where other people cannot that is a big challenge for all of us So let me summarize what we just read in those few passages. Love your enemies, be merciful and just as your father. 
uh, do not judge or condemn, but forgive. We do tend to judge or condemn. Uh, give and it will be given to you, uh, or else how are we any different from others? You know, at the Alpha Workplace Conference, uh, we were jokingly told this particular phrase that when people go to Alpha, you know, they tell the people in Alpha, you do not need to defend your faith. You know, Nikki Gumbo will do that or all the videos will do that. And many people who come who are wanting to hear and to talk about these questions, they will start off by saying, you Christians are... You're like this, da, 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 da. and then people get upset and they start answering and they start defending and it becomes like an argument there. And so at the Alpha Workplace Conference, they said, here's your standard response. It's two things, right? The first one is, how interesting. And the second thing is, tell me more. Can you turn to the person next to you and say, how interesting and tell me more because what you're doing here is you're letting them talk say what you want to say speak what you want to say get it off your mind because as, as long as you don't have it out and you feel that we keep pushing it and you're not listening uh, then they're not listening and so in your small groups you will have some, some characters who are out there who have a totally different view it is not your job to hammer the truth into him and force it down his throat. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. You state the truth, but you don't have to argue until the point that you become enemies. How are we different? Don't judge them. Neither do we condemn them. We forgive them. We move on. Let me bring us back to this earlier question. What are the ritual observances that you are doing? You know, it may be that you know, part of your huge upbringing was uh, must go to church. But what is the purpose of church? The purpose of church is that we encounter the love of God and that we become receptacles of this love in order that when we go out as apostles, we do the will of God. What is the purpose in our meeting in a small groups? It's not just the ritual of just every Thursday or Friday or Saturday, just gathering together, makan. It is fellowship, having attitudes of love and grace towards each other to send them off in order to do God's will. How will you change? How will you look at your rituals and look at the attitudes that God is challenging in all of this? This love for enemies and so forth. As a small group, will you be prepared to lead others? And also, as small group leaders, are you preparing members in your group when you're not around? Jesus had a three-year mission plan, after which he said to the 11 of them, go, <laughs> make disciples. The rest of his plan was left to the people. Maybe sometimes small group leaders, rather than you know, trying to carry everything, uh, we need to encourage people to say, look, I'm doing this, you need to take a load as well. And I know you are trying that. Maybe it's left up to the members as well to step up and be like the disciples. Secondly, love evidences mercy. There is an attitude of love that always evidences mercy. And mercy is effectively 
not giving you what you rightfully deserve in terms of punishment. It is taking the blame and bearing with it. Three, have this attitude that you hesitate to judge and condemn. There are times when you are called to judge and make a statement. But in most settings, it's best for us to hesitate to judge, get to know people, listen to them first, and then ask, how interesting, can you tell me more? Because after they've spoken out all their mind and they've said it and you understood them, then only will they be willing to listen. And it's at that point when Christ becomes real for them. Lastly, will you have this attitude of a readiness to forgive, to give compassion and generosity because that at the heart of it is the heart of our Lord. Let me end with this particular challenge. You watched that video earlier on. We have all these small groups that are there. And in your bulletin, you actually have one of these uh, insert forms. I urge you, if you're not yet part of a small group, would you just fill this in and give it a try, at least for three months to six months, and see whether it makes a huge difference. Now, I know for a fact that there are many people who feel very uncomfortable in small groups. Uh, they say, this is just not me, I don't do this. Again, I'm not asking you to do it because it's fun. I'm asking you to do it because Christ modelled it and all the scriptures point and say, you are called to do this, to not give up in meeting together. So it's a scriptural mandate. But I also say this from a point of having attended small groups with uh, learning disabled people. In Sramban, we had what was called the uh, Pusat Badikari. Uh, the, it was a learning disabled autistic Asperger uh, center where at least once a month I would go there and we would sit with each other. Now, if you've ever uh, sat with people who are autistic, or Asperger, they are very socially awkward people. They do not know how to interact in social environments. And to sit down in a group and talk to each other is the most unsettling thing for them to do. But it's amazing how much support that they get when you understand what they're doing. I remember once uh, uh, sitting down in a group and one of the guys got up and he walked to the window and he started banging his head against the window. And the guys in that group said to him, Pastor, don't worry about him. He, uh, he does that every once in a while. He'll sort himself after five minutes and come back down. And like clockwork, he did. After he had banged his head for a bit, he came back with a grunt and he sat down. There are people who come into our communities where friendship and smiling and looking at someone is the hardest thing for them. It really tires them out. And small groups provide that sense of companionship. The thing is, they find it really awkward and very hard, but it is the one thing that they also desire and need. And so will you find a way when you know each other well enough to say, how can I help you? We in particularly have quite a number of people who find it difficult to just uh, sit down and quietly. They need to be part of a community, but they, are, they need a way 
of coming in. One guy shared that uh, he likes to talk about his video games. And so when he comes, a couple will come and talk to him and say, so any new video games that you played? You say, and they don't understand at all what he's talking about, but they spend time talking to him. And because they do this, he feels welcome and he's warmed up enough to say, I can handle any other question now. Maybe that's what we need at times to accept each other, not judge each other, and love each other. So do respond, fill in this form, uh, and I, I'm trying to give you enough time so that you go to the back later on. There is an exhibition booth so that you know where are the small groups and you can ask some questions there. Let's pray. Dear Lord, you created us special and in your image. And you made us different, Lord, such that at times we will rub against each other. And yet you call us to be merciful to those who do evil to us, to pray for those who insult us, Lord, and to do good uh, to those who are evil. Lord. Grant us courage to have this attitude and to not abide just by the ritual norms and the mores of our society, uh, but to go beyond and have the attitude of Christ in us. Pray this, Lord. Asking this all in Jesus' name. Amen.